Hi there. Welcome to Asians Do Therapy. This is Yin. I hope you're doing well enough, considering that we're still in the middle of this dual pandemic. As a therapist who primarily work with Asian and Asian American folks, I think a lot about not just how racism and white supremacy affect us, but I also think a lot about how do we heal? How do we restore our sense of wellness and wholeness, both individually and collectively? So I'm really excited to share today with you my conversation with Dr. Annalise Singh, who is currently the Associate Dean of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion and a professor at the University of Georgia, and who will be becoming the Chief Diversity Officer at Tulane University in July 2020. Dr. Singh says that racism is the greatest trauma that we'll live with, and that navigating racism is not sufficient. We need to wake up, we need to learn about racism, and we need to grieve, and we need to hope. She wrote several books, and one of them being the Racial Healing Handbook, which I highly recommend. In the book, she highlights 10 strategies for racial healing. We discuss some of these strategies in our conversation. We also get quite personal and share our own experiences with race, racism, and where we are in our own healing journey. Regardless of where you are in your racial awareness and healing, my hope is that you find this episode helpful, that it sparks some curiosity in you about how racism has affected you, and that you find this conversation supportive, that it helps further your racial healing process. So here's my conversation with Annalise. Maybe you can just start by a little introduction of yourself to folks who are listening. Sure. My name is Anneli Singh. I currently work as the Associate Dean of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion in the College of Education at the University of Georgia. I'm actually traveling to New Orleans this summer. I'll be their first uh, Chief Diversity Officer. So my wife and I are moving to New Orleans. Excited about that. Pronouns are she, her, hers. And I think they, them, there are awesome pronouns for me too. And, you know, a lot of my work has been with queer and trans folks of color, a lot of work in Asian. American Pacific Islander counseling and psychology and in uh, working with immigrants. So uh, yeah, it's cool to be here. And you, you wrote a couple of books. You left that out. <laughs> I did. <laughs> yeah, I did. Well, one of them being the racial healing handbook that we're going to be talking about today. Right. You know, it's interesting. My journey in book writing has been, you know, starting off doing stuff in social justice and group work that was more academic, working on an academic writing textbook with my wife, which was an interesting project to work on. And uh, also, um, you know, I've written several books on exploring uh, trans counseling and psychology specifically. And then really leapt into kind of social justice, self-community help books with when I wrote the Queer and Trans Resilience Workbook. And so after I did that one, you know, I felt like the Racial Healing Handbook was right there waiting to come out of me. So, so that, that's my latest. What led you to write it in a handbook version? Because it is a workbook. There's a lot of practices in the book that I found particularly helpful. Um, than a, versus an, an academic book? Sure. I think for me, as someone who was raised by an Indian dad, who is an immigrant to this country in the religion of Sikhism, who married my white mom, who was from Northeast Louisiana, exactly where Duck Dynasty is filmed. So it was just I growing up as mixed race, but raised in a very Indian household because my mom converted to Sikhism as a religion. And then, you know, we were very much immersed in Indian culture. I think uh, growing up in New Orleans, uh, where there weren't that many Indian families, and certainly not that many Sikh families, you know, I think New Orleans is a very black and white dynamic. So it's going to be interesting to go home, uh, where New Orleans has changed, you know, a lot more uh, Asian Pacific Islander Americans there now, but at the time growing up, not so much. And I think because my dad was having a distinct immigrant and brown experience as a brown person in a land that we now call the United States, he just he was in such an assimilation process in some ways, but he also had a very strong religious and uh, racial identity. So uh, I got this real mixed message from him and my mom, because we would see and often experience my dad being called a terrorist, you know, go back home. And my white mom didn't really say things like, hey, sweetie, this is racism. And my dad wasn't able to really say, hey, this is racism. 
So I think I was having a really complicated experience about race growing up. And as a light-skinned person of color, mixed race person, I think I've had so many opportunities to witness how anti-blackness works, how uh, within my South Asian community, uh, racism is internalized. Like, don't go out into the sun, you'll get too dark. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> yeah, my mother tells me the same thing as an East Asian person. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. And where yeah. did we pick that up? Usually colonization. But yeah. it's, um, you know, I think those messages and, and really, you know, as I uh, kind of trained in the academy, I, I also did a lot of community organizing growing up, working in women's reproductive health, working on immigrant rights. I think naturally you bump into like issues of race and racism. And so finally, when I got to college and, you know, graduate school, I was able to explore some of those issues more deeply. And then mostly within queer and trans people of color community. So I think, you know, when I kind of think about why I wrote it, I think some of it was out of frustration that I just like, why are we not, why are we talking about racism on such a highfalutin level? Can't we just, you know, start to heal from this? Because I know we're trying to. Totally. How I came to your book was sort of looking for how do we actually heal from this? Because I was reading these articles about why it's bad, why it hurts people. And but there was nothing about how yeah. do we resist this and how do we heal from it? And I think your book kind of really gave people a roadmap or gave myself a roadmap about how to do this work. Yeah. And we can talk about the contents of the book in, in a little more detail, but um, sure. But maybe we can define racism, for, you know, because I, I think we use these terms, but I think it's helpful to have a working uh, knowledge of what it actually is. Uh, you define it in your book, but I was wondering if you could speak to it a little bit. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's so many ways you can define racism. And I think just a quick shortcut, it's uh, a system of racial hierarchy where white folks are held as dominant and superior and folks of color are in a sub-dominant, like oppressed situation. So, um, you know, in terms of value, in terms of resources, in terms of access, and uh, within that system, white supremacy reigns, and then everything else comes second. And so racism is internalized, and it's also enacted. So uh, racism can be performed by any person of any race, right? And I think that is an interesting thing to talk about when it comes to people of color being quote-unquote racist. For a long time, people were like, oh, and I think to this day, people are like, oh, people of color can't be racist because we don't have the power. And it's like, well, actually, if we all internalize uh, white supremacy uh, as folks of color, then we can enact those within ourselves and within, within settings in which we work. So you can kind of do a little equation like racism equals white supremacy. That was helpful for me to read it because it became so clear that the issue is that the issue is white supremacy in the climate that we're in and sort of the the more blatant anti-Asian racism and people talk about anti-blackness or what about these other groups? It's not as violent as, you know, whatever it is, but those are all symptoms of white supremacy. You know, it's not so much. I guess the I guess what's getting pointed out is the violence that's happening in between the subgroups as opposed to the issue being white supremacy like these are all symptoms of this thing that we're all infected by and affected by uh, and just enacting it. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> 100%. That is exactly it and you're exactly right. I think when I do trainings I often have people say and repeat after me, uh maybe you can do it with me. Yeah. Say white supremacy white supremacy it feels weird yeah. and can you say it again yeah i said it white with supremacy. i said it with a face <laughs> i know if people can see you your, your whole face yeah. is like no <laughs> just try it one more time but it, like try it say white supremacy when you're like okay i know what racism is white supremacy yep and it is emotional, it lives within us. And I think we've learned not to say it because we get it confused with white nationalism, that if we talk about white supremacy, maybe we're trying to support white nationalism, different things, right? But to talk about racism and to heal from it, we've got to talk about white supremacy. Yeah. And I could feel it the second time that you asked me to do it, how like I felt more emotional. I think there was mm -hmm. something happening inside of me when I said it with, without the face. Yes, and I felt it over here in Atlanta, even because, yeah. you know, in that exchange, even though we're very, we're on two different, you know, time zones, yeah. um, that's how visceral it is. Because yeah. when we start to get it, 
it's, you know, we can work on trying to forget it, but it's really hard. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that is a big piece of the work is knowing what racism is and then just noticing how difficult it is for our bodies, our minds, and our spirits to hold that idea because it's trauma. And I think those of us who do therapy and mental health work, we know how trauma works. There's the dialectic of remembering and forgetting. Yeah. And it's also kind of that word white supremacy versus whiteness mm-hmm. or white people. There's a difference there yes. too, right? Because the enemy is not white people. Right. <laughs> and I think that is also understanding the system and why it's so harmful mm-hmm. or oppressive. Because I think in your book, you also talk about the hurt that it causes white people. Yes, the cost of white privilege for white folks and for people of color. And it was one of the hardest things I had to look at in deciding, number one, to write the book and who the audience would be. Because I think as a person of color, I you know, have had usually the most rich, authentic, honest conversations within my own community. And so I felt as I sat with the idea of this book and like, oh, this has got to come out of me. It's coming out. Ah, it's coming out. I was like, you know what? Like, this is for white folks and people of color to do together alongside each other. So in the book, my hope is that, you know, different racial groups can start to kind of see one another and see one another's process, right? So that I think was one of the biggest challenges and you know, welcome any and all feedback from folks around that because it was definitely a hard decision. But I do think that in one way or another, um, certainly harm for people of color. I don't believe in the oppression Olympics and r- the way racism is defined. We know that people of color experience the most harm from racism. That's just how it's positioned and the system works. And there's harm for white folks in terms of their humanity, uh, an accurate understanding of history, of the world, of relationships. Of reclaiming their identity, their cultural identity. You are, you are exactly right. Yeah. So when people, white folks come to the, United, the land we now call the United States and maybe had to, in the immigration journey, unlearn different parts of their culture or reject those pieces. Yeah. And now we kind of talked about the effects of racism, right? We kind of, there's many studies that show that the impacts of racism on mental health and physical health. And as a clinical psychologist working with students, you know, kind of just maybe giving us more color as to what you see, how it affects people. Yeah, I think that in terms of, you know, racism and mental health, one of the things that we just know is that you, you know, racism alters genetics, really, when you think about it. So you can talk about physical health disparities, and we know that diabetes, you know, uh, heart disease, like, you know, cancer, aggressive forms of cancer, right? But when you think about the mental health cost of living with those physical inequities and health disparities over time, I mean, you're talking about depression, but will people come to a therapist? Probably not, because we were all trained starting with Freud, which sucks. The true history of psychology does not start with William James. It just happened to be a white guy who said that word. Healing has been in all cultures and actually follows the arc of migration from the continent of Africa then out into Asia and, and the ways that humans diverge. So I think we're often not trained in how to actually deal with racism in the therapy room. And it's something I think about a lot as a, as a clinician who works with primarily Asian American folks in my practice that they come into my therapy office with depressive symptoms or anxiety or family relationships or interpersonal difficulties. And there is this sort of, whether they're aware of it or not, there's this context of race and trauma, or racial trauma in the mix, right? That yes. affects how they show up and what they're um, struggling with. Right. And if they have permission to talk about or that. Or they're even aware of it. You know, different people are in different stages. In your book, you talk about the racial sort of development process, and some people are just not quite there yet, but they know something is wrong and can't articulate it yet. But that it's something that I think a lot about. How do these, um, in your book, you talk about socialization. So like, then it made me think about ways that people, like personality traits, you know, how much of that is impacted by my racial experience. Yes, I love it. Socialization is a huge thing because if you want to look at racial healing, you've got to do, I mean, really the first step is knowing your racial identity and how you've been 
socialized uh, and how racism gets internalized because we, we are born into this world with these racial mechanics in place. And they often, you know, the rules go, the mechanics go that you don't talk about race. But meanwhile, you're upholding white norms, white as positive, even if you're not saying white. That's just the norm that we always default back to. Now, culturally, I think in Asian American Pacific Islander communities, you know, not always, but often we have a strong, like, cultural base, right? This is a big generalization. And then there's kind of the unique way that racism shows up in our communities as, yes, this cultural base is really strong and you've got to follow this base. But over here, outside of our family, you've got to be someone else, right? In in my South Asian community, it's like, okay, you've got to go out in the world and stand out and be successful, but you need to be part of a group. And so like that culture is very strong. That collectivism is very strong, but that like kind of disconnect for where the individualism is coming from is also strong. It's like, we're not going to name that, you know, we're sending (laughs) our generations out into the world to operate in the context of white supremacy where, which means it demands we don't talk about racism because if we did, there would be a riot and we'd overthrow like lots of systems <laughs> and, and we would bond with other people of color communities in doing so. Yeah. But the, we, if we don't do it in a way that creates collective power, then we're punished by it, you know? So it's like, yes. so we don't talk about it. Right. And at the same time, you know, I mean, there are all these kind of inconsistencies or tensions because at the same time, we kind of do the wink and the nod about, you know, how those white people are. And so we're giving each other messages about like where the danger exists, but again, not naming the system. And so that's where we get our first socialization from our family around racism. Don't talk about it, but here's how to navigate it. So we have a lot of resilience of how to navigate white supremacy. And then it's like, we're tricked into thinking we're winning. And it's like, we're not hashtag winning. (laughs) This is hashtag losing. Yeah. Wait, so sorry, the resilience, you said we have a lot of ways to be resilient like can you sure i mean I, you know when i think about you know the ways that my dad raised me he was in kind of his language you know there's this word beta which means like baby or sweet one so it's a term of endearment he'd be like beta you can grow up to be whoever you want do whatever you want and and it's like meanwhile like we're being called like terrorists and i see you know i saw my dad physically and verbally assaulted regularly i grew up in the 70s and 80s so you know, I think he would also say, Beta, they don't know what they do. And so he would kind of explain that away. And then he sent me to private schools. <laughs> you know, he, there was a lot of saving up of money. Like I remember like my, uh, like the lights would be turned out, but like we were going to private school. <laughs> so like they made sure to resource all their money into education is like, hey, we see this long term of getting you out of this system and pushing you forward, but we're not actually going to talk about what's happening right now. So I think education is a source of resilience, family. I mean, the world isn't safe out there. I mean, this is major eye roll, this story, but my dad would always be like, you and your brother need to live together until you're married. And of course he meant to a man, which surprise, you know, (laughs) that didn't happen. And I'm glad it didn't. Uh, No hate on the straight people. But my point is like, he was like, trying to kind of say stay within your community so interesting we share so many similarities i went to private school too and (laughs) (laughs) and my mother and i would walk for i don't know it felt like hours as as a kid because she wanted to save so that piece is present and then like my mother has this thing of like oh your sisters and you need to stay connected i mean we are there's this very much a focus about the three there's this fantasy my dad had about us working together like having a business together, you know, kind of like the tightness of, uh, yes, we are one, we are one. And when we are together, we're safe. And, you know, gosh, like I want to believe that with every part of me and to some extent it can be true. But when we look at the larger system, it's just, it's, it's not true and it's painful. Yeah. Um, there's so many pieces I want to go back to. (laughs) One is this, um, this, pain for this you talk about grieving in your book yeah yes um <laughs> and <laughs> and <laughs> we're laughing but we're like uh. 
I'm laughing for many reasons because, yeah, I mean, when white folks grieve, it usually turns out to be bad. And it's usually in a big group where they get shamed and people are like, oh, gosh, there they go again. And then, you know, I think in Asian American Pacific Islander community, we don't always like the ways we're even allowed to uh, express our grief is can be so uh, scripted and restricted uh, in terms of how it actually feels in our body. Like the ritual of it or the yes. ceremony? And, yes, you know. yeah. I mean, we know how our cultural rituals around death and loss, right? But what cultural rituals do we have around racism and the grieving of that? We just, we don't, but we can start to think of, and I think this is part, recently I've been talking more about racial liberation and thinking about cultural resilience is an aspect of grief. So I think in the racial healing handbook, I talk a lot about how grieving can show up as we start to heal from racism. But when I think about racial liberation and cultural resilience, I think about reclaiming some of the cultural acts and traditions we've been taught and using that is in our mourning process. So for me, that comes back a lot to my religion. It comes back a lot to food. It comes back a lot to sitting in community. And so, but if you just go, you know, basically what I did in the racial healing handbook is I used Kubler-Ross's stages of grief and really just kind of named how they apply to healing from racism and you know, that moves from denial, oh, racism isn't real, which again goes back to our first socialization to anger and you know, being upset when we realize like, oh, that's a thing that actually not just happens in the world to other people, but it happens to me. And I think the first moment we often, I think as Asian American Pacific Islander folks can remember that first moment that we realized racism was real. I don't know if you remember. I, I remember very vividly. Would you like to share? I've kind of alluded to it, uh, but I think I think I was having that every you know common experience that kids have where their parents bring them to go get in New Orleans it was called an icy and then um, you know I was little like I, I must have been like three ish and just hearing another large I mean he seemed very large in my mind a small large white man like calling my dad I think he called him the N word and and being very confused about what was going on. Uh, and feeling very unsafe. Do you remember when it happened to you? Is it okay to even ask? Because I should ask for permission. No, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, you know, I didn't grow up in the United States. I'm a third culture kid. So okay. I grew up in different, I grew up in Iran and Brazil. So it's like, cool. my sense of race is a little, it's confusing at times for me, yes. like how I relate to this different parts of the world and my Chinese identity. And but I've been in the in the United States for 20 plus years now. So it's like I'm a little split between that. So my first memory is a little blurry because we had a very strong Chinese community in Iran, oddly enough. So I remember um, being with people that look like me a lot. So do you remember that moment where you realized that you know, that you, when you went out of that safety and that strong kind of Chinese community that was insulating you and incubating like a lot of cultural resilience is one of you, which is great. Yeah, I think back about it. It's like, oh, that probably has buffered some of this for me, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. environment. But what I remember is my mother recently told me, I have an anglicized name that I don't use at the moment, but I had asked her about it you know, why we had anglicized names and my sisters do too. And, and she told me because when we lived in Iran, my, we went to American school there and uh, she said, the teacher said it was really hard to remember these Chinese names. Can you give your children anglicized names? Mm. And that hit me. Oh, well, the, my mother has been experiencing this for a long time. You know, she doesn't have the language for it. And the way she told it to me was like, oh, like so painful. Right. Well, and I'm curious, you know, because that is one thing I talk about in doing racial healing work. And I think it's great to be talking about mental health because you'll get this. But often as we're developing, well, not often, it just happens as we're developing our race and having experiences of racism or being treated as an other, right? Which I would imagine even if you don't remember it and you had all this cultural resilience was happening, if you have this teacher asking for a name 
it's happening at a time our hindbrain is more developed than this frontal lobe, which is able to really process and kind of sort what is actually happening to us. So, I mean, one of the things I talk about in racial healing work is that it is a very emotional experience because there are often things we probably don't remember that we experienced. And I think sometimes that becomes the glue that holds it all like, Ooh, we don't want to like dig into this, right? We don't want to dig into white supremacy we don't want to dig into racism. But then we start digging in. It's like, oh, I have a three-year-old that shows up you know, three-year-old Annalise that's like, yo, uh, that's not safe and that's not safe. And, you know, I'm 50 and like, I'm safe in many ways, not safe in others, but that three-year-old is the part of me I need to work on remembering that, you know, little Annalise is there and learning to build a relationship with that three-year-old so I can explain what happened. And that's where all the first part of the racial healing handbook is really designed about is it's a lot more of the individual strategies that healing strategies that you might do like grieving. Are you going to do that with people? Probably, but it's mostly an internal process. And then the first five healing strategies are really more individual. And then the last ones are really kind of moving out into community still with self. Some folks talk about racial trauma as trauma, like that resides in the body, which I think it's totally accurate in, in what you're alluding mm -hmm. to these things that these experiences yes. that we don't remember, you know, especially as it relates to shame, you know, sense of not feeling quite whole that we can't quite articulate, but it's like ever present in, in our experience. But the piece that I appreciate about your book is that there isn't um, treating racial trauma just as trauma that kind of, there's an end point sometimes with, you know, trauma that happens, whether it's a car accident or, you know, whatever it is, it ends and you have a chance to process. But with racial trauma, you just kind of ongoing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> I know. know. We get... <laughs> So I'm like, am I in a perpetual state of mourning then? <laughs> yes, yes, we are. Uh, welcome to racial healing is that we know we're grieving and we shorten the time between the grievings happening and we remember why it's happening, right? And, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot in our community, especially as it relates to East Asian folks uh, in the United States. And I, and I think around the world too, I mean, we've seen the anti-Asian anti-Pacific Islander racism show up in lots of different places around the globe during COVID-19. And, you know, just really in working with clients, it's, it's not just checking in or, hey, like, how are you doing with all this anti-Asian racism? It's like, what are the parts of you that really, you know, are feeling like you need to just get over this or ignore it or feel like hypervigilant right now or feel like you're having intrusive Kind of thoughts or dreams or nightmares. I mean, I think that um, kind of what's going on in the outside world really does impact our racial healing. And I think that's where the grieving process comes because right now, I think the anti-Asian racism that we're seeing unique to COVID, not unique in the world, but unique to how COVID is revealing a certain slice of it, you know, we should be hella pissed. A anger is a sign of our boundaries and it's a sign of grief, right? But if we're stuck in like denial, like that race card thing, am I playing a race card? Or No, the race card doesn't exist. It's called white supremacy and racism. So I think that the grief has been really on my mind recently. You know, the last few months as we've moved through this global pandemic and as we'll move through it uh, over many months, um, I think we've got a lot to discuss as a community. Yeah. Can you speak to like the importance of grieving? Because I think just in as this sort of overt anti-Asian racism is happening, you know, people are reporting more cases. There's a lot of activism happening, you know, a lot of anger, frustration and discussions about happening, but I don't hear a lot of grieving. So can you speak to the importance of it? Sure. I mean, if you think about like, you know, we move from denial, like maybe some folks in our community or even us, because I think we cycle in and out of these and sometimes are in multiple stages at the same or spaces, which I call these spaces at the same time, you know, we're kind of oblivious and whoa, like we get upset, frustrated, that's the anger, but maybe we get stuck in the bargaining, like the what if questions, was that racist? Was it not? Did that person like move away from me? Because like... I'm in the East Asian community or, you know, I mean, 
for a long time with the beginning of COVID, there were lots of internalized racist messages in black and brown communities that black and brown folks couldn't get COVID-19. Where did that come from? That's like some racist, internalized racist BS. You know, the depression is probably the hardest thing to feel. And we know that as mental health folks, when we sit with the grief, you know, we, we often work with people about holding and feeling the sadness or the depression, right? That it feels like if I start to feel this sadness, there's going to be, like you said before, there's going to be no end to it. Like it will last forever. And so I often am working with clients around like, whoa, whoa, you're getting to that you know, sadness, depression around racism experience. And I can't guarantee that it's going to go away because it's not. I'm going to tell you the truth around that. But I often use the metaphor of t-shirts. And some of us might do this, like emotions are like t-shirts. You take one on and you take one off, right? And so getting folks to feel the beginning, middle, and end of the sadness related to racism or kind of what's going on right now with the anti-Asian racism, feeling that discrete emotion and knowing more may come and that it's also okay to move into acceptance or other, or go back. Uh, I don't know if I should say go back because I know I don't really think of it as linear, but move to another place as a way of self-preservation. That's totally okay. And I kind of think of the acceptance stage as uh, once you have some awareness that this is going on, that grieving is a part of racial healing, that kind of part of you is in acceptance all the time, because hopefully if you've moved through what I see as the racial healing strategies, you, you kind of put yourself and situate yourself in a long line of freedom fighters who've worked to challenge racism, to name it, who took breaks, who rested, who had families, who like, you know, thrived and who some of them picketed, some of them like did policy change, but that we never go back to this new normal where we're like, la, 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 about white supremacy. And we can name, you know what, right now, I'm going to be, I'm going to hang out and bargaining for a minute because I, I need, I need to rest. Yeah. So it sounds like you're saying that like the grieving process allow us to move through these feelings and kind of arrive at some other place that then we can sort of maybe decide how yes. we want to do to take action as opposed to staying stuck in this. Yes. If racism gives us this not gift of obliviousness around race and racism, racial healing is about waking up and knowing we're not going to solve this overnight, but that this is stuff that's built to make us question ourselves make us feel like there's something wrong with us, make us, even if we don't, I mean, as someone who's developed a lot of racial pride over my life um, and worked on that distinctly, it's, there's still times internalized racism shows up and I'm still going to grieve like, really? I'm not done with that yet. <laughs> um, but giving our, ourselves the ability to feel again. Yeah. I wonder what you think about this, because I've been sort of, as this was happening, I've been thinking a lot about it. And in a lot of the sort of media, whatever, there's there's like this, like fight, like kind of a, a protesting of, you know, in, in this particular case of the COVID-19 and what Asian folks are experiencing, of proving our Americanness or, or being seen as American or being seen as human, you know, however way people put it. But there is some, somehow a reluctance, in my, in my view, of seeing the realities of how we're being seen and how we will be seen until white supremacy is this, you know, changes. Yes, dismantled. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But the, that the suffering is the, is the reluctance to see what it is, as opposed to this is what it is. This is how we've been treated. This is how we're going to be treated for the foreseeable, my lifetime. And something about accepting that felt very relieving to me. And I don't know if that's part of my grieving process or my cynicism. It felt like, oh, this is what it is. And there's deep despair there too. But it felt relieving to be like, this is what it is. And this is what we're dealing with really appreciate you sharing that with me because I think there is some freedom when you realize that yes it's a system and we're impacted and guess what living our lives for other people we can be hashtag done with that we can be hashtag building like a new vision of what 
the world would look like without racism. I think that's a really hard vision to hold. But, you know, if white supremacy drains our imagination from what that would look like, when we go into grieving and we accept that, whoa, okay, white supremacy is here and it's got some permanence to it. It's got, it's got some, you know, it's got about 400 years, four to 600, depending on how you define the start of racism, right? It's a few hundred years old. If we kind of think about the next few hundred years, the next few generations, hopefully we're, the planet is still here. I'll just say that. But we can 100% do this. We can dream this. We can live this. We can find ways to experience joy, to experience uh, liberation, to experience freedom as we accept the pain. You know, it, as we know as uh, mental health folks, like, as soon as we get to that nugget, the hardest, like the thorn, you know, and then we start to extract that. It's like, ah, you know, the skin wants to pull on the thorn. It's the hardest part of the extraction. And then as soon as it's out, you're like, whoo, hey, my shoulders feel like they went to the proper part of my body. They're not up by my ears, you know, you know, I feel like I have more space in my heart. As you're talking, it's kind of the both and the despair and the hope yes. as opposed to sort of fighting what, what it actually is. And I want to follow up on what you said about despair, because I think that just like we can see folks get a little stuck in maybe the sadness or depression or like avoid it completely. We want to support folks moving, not just like, ooh, accept it, but like there is possibility even as white supremacy exists. Like there are just ways that we've resisted and even the folks in our generations of family have resisted, even if they didn't see it that way. My dad kept his turban. He kept his hair long. He was resisting like a mofo, like every day, every second of the day. And I got to see that. This huge cultural resilience going on. And it hurt. And it was confusing. But, you know, now that I've gone to that pain point, I'm like, whoa, I know what that feels and how that still lives in me. And I've got my own version of that turban, not being an outside visual, but um, there's some solidity I can access in my own racial healing that no one can take away from me. I think this is the second part of what I wanted to talk to you about is about this resilience and this racial pride that, you know, supports the resilience. That part of it you're talking about is like knowing your racial history and knowing your racial identity and how important that is to one build that resilience is not not let it hurt so much. I don't know if that's right. the right way yeah. to put it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like how you talked about knowing your racial identity, knowing kind of the racial history of your particular heritage, knowing the, the good parts and maybe not, not so good parts. Yes. The ways we collude yeah. with racism. Yes. Our privileges in it, you know, as an East Asian person, I have some privileges, but I also have some oppressions. But this piece also kind of, I wanted to ask you about is kind of, for example, with, with Chinese culture, there are parts of it that I feel tremendous pride in. And there's parts of it that I feel shame in and Partly, maybe it's internalized oppression, but also some cultural values that I don't identify with or disagree with or parts of it that I feel rejected by. How to create this racial positive racial identity given this context of like maybe some ambivalence about it or parts of it that doesn't feel quite totally positive? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think... In the book, I really talk about kind of knowing that we, you have a race, know that you have a racial identity. And I talk about kind of the developmental pieces that for that. So for folks of color, kind of we, we start off in kind of a conformity stage where we're oblivious that racism is real and that dissonance space where we're like, ah, we're experiencing it in that immersion where we start to like not only sus be suspicious of white folks, but feel really anger towards uh, white folks and maybe the more immersion within our own cultures and communities as a way to protect and feel that anger or just feel the feelings or just be insulated, right? And then there's that kind of movement out of that space into like, oh, okay, maybe there are white folks out there who are good, who are fighting racism that are like allies and advocates. And then I don't believe there's an end goal in racial identity development, but certainly there's this idea that you have a multitude of people in your, in your life racially and diversity of folks where you understand, you know, just all the complexities of racism. And I think having, developing a positive identity 
weird to use that word, but I guess I do use that word, is that even the times like during COVID-19, it's very post 9-11 for my community, for South Asian community, you know, we went back into gurdwaras and temples and mosques and took shelter with one another. And like, you know, sometimes hated on white folks and really hated on racism. Just like, this is painful. We need to be with our people. And then we're able to emerge in different places. So I think um, the other piece of what you're asking me really reminds me of Gloria Anzaldúa's work. And she wrote La Frontera, uh, The Borderlands, and just awesome, wonderful, wonderful. If you haven't read Anzaldúa, read her. But I think she taught me a lot about, you know, what it means to be in tension with our own cultures. So for me, with South Asian culture, with Indian culture, a culture that, of course, I know and can see the internalized colonization of it, uh, whether it's about skin color, the connections to caste, I mean, all the things. I can see it, all that. But at the same time, there are these things that are just, I love about my culture, you know, like the kinship and the openness and, I don't know, just the luxuriousness of whether it's food or dance or just presence. For me, I know a lot of folks listening might identify as atheist or agnostic, and that's awesome. For me, I think I have a deeply spiritual perspective and that directly comes out of my South Asian culture of like, we're together, we're one. I mean, I love that feeling. And there's the freaking patriarchy and there's the annoying like caste system. I mean, there's just like all the things I don't agree with. And Anzal Dua talks about how as folks of color, like we long to go home to our home culture, which actually wasn't home. And so it's up to us to, like we want to go back there because there's so many good things about it. And, and we take those with us, but we're actually imagining and dreaming or have the opportunity to dream about that future home that is better for all of us. And I think as you were talking about those tensions, you're like, oh, I don't really agree with that. And actually, no. Hashtag definitely no. Um, <laughs> or hell no. <laughs> I think that's your unique in future about like, I mean, I would love you to keep dreaming that because that's not a rejection of your culture. That's like moving your culture forward. You're that next generation that gets to dream and question and re-envision how things should be put together. But you've also mentioned shame. And I think that's where, you know, the shame can kind of hold some of that process in place and freeze it so we don't get to do that dreaming, right? So I think racial healing is really about there's one of the racial healing strategies that's really about intersectionality. It's um, reclaiming your whole racial self. So for me, as like a queer, non-binary person with ability privilege and light-skinned person of color, mixed race, I mean, all those things are true. And that gives me such a unique perspective on racial healing. And I need all those parts, which means I'm gonna question the heck out of what I've been taught culturally. And so I think it's important to kind of separate culture and race and then be able to put them back together in some ways. So I don't know if that answers your question, but. Yeah, speaking to you, there's both this like imagining, dreaming what's possible, like a new thing, not what was or what is. I think that's what you're speaking yes, to. Yes, definitely. And we need you doing that. Even as you're grieving, even as you're looking at your socialization, even as you're, you know, all the components of racial healing, looking at how racism shows up in our relationships and in dating and friendships, all the things like allying with people, being strong advocates for people of color across races. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask, and I know because we're short on yes. time a little bit, I wanted to ask these questions, sure. but um, how do I know I'm healing from racism? <laughs> <laughs> like, just directly tell me, <laughs> people listening. How do I know I'm doing a good job? <laughs> well, you know, I'm going to challenge you on the good job. Yeah, <laughs> Come <I know. laughs> on, we're therapists. We got to do that, you know? I mean, I think that you can, and some, sometimes uh, as I've led workshops on racial healing, you know, with the 10 strategies, kind of have people um, rate themselves on a scale of one to 10 just like we would do with any type of behavior change or tracking mood, like one as I'm not healing. <laughs> I, I'm not kind of, you know, be a racial ally. I'm not trying to do that today uh, versus like, I'm probably at a seven, you know, in terms of being a racial ally. I mean, I think it's really, racial healing is really about um, increasing your awareness every day 
that it's okay for you to heal and that our resistance and refusal of engaging with white supremacy is something that needs to be in our everyday life. So it doesn't mean we have to be like, oh gosh, I'm thinking about racism today, but it's more curiosity. Like, all right, I'm, I know this exists. I'm taking action in various ways and I don't go back into obliviousness, which is exactly where white supremacy wants us to be. But it's not to think about it every day. So I think the, the way you know you're, you're healing is you have awareness and you have a racial lens and you know not only that you have a racial lens, but that it's awesome you do. Does that help? Yeah, I think, yeah, as you were talking, you made me think about how do I know a client is healing from, you know, trauma or how they're doing better, right? Like the ability to have awareness and be self-reflective and have choice in how they want to engage with people in the world. So I think, I guess it's similar. Yes. Yeah. And I think, you know, racial healing means that we're opening our eyes to the cost of racism, but we also look at how it shows up in our psyche as those little nicks and wounds and tears. And we give ourselves permission to heal from that. So uh, for instance, uh, if I'm working with a client, you know, from the very beginning, I mean, this is part of the work. It's on my intake. It's part of how I introduce myself right along with my pronouns. It's kind of like my, my race and and exploring what it will mean for folks to work with me, you know, whether they're white, Asian Pacific Islander, I mean, that's such an important part. And especially with my Asian Pacific Islander clients, I might get the weight. Well, what? I didn't, I don't know if I came into, and I'm like, you know what? It can be surprising to think about those things and love permission for us to be able to explore that in your therapy. Are you saying when you're seeing clients, you say your identities and you also say that we were going to explore race in, in our time together? Is that what you're saying? Well, I, I mean, it's kind of on my intake form, along with all the demographic factors. I have a question about how folks feel like race might kind of intersect with some of their presenting issues. And, you know, you're going to get the it doesn't to it does. I mean, just opening that door at the beginning of the therapy experience, I think is so important. And again, I know folks might be working in short-term models or one-time sessions. Those can be a little harder to do this work in, but I think naming it is important. Because when we name it as providers, it gives permission. Totally, yeah. Which is, which is I think you're kind of answering this next question around like advice for clinicians of color, being activated by the material, being activated by what's happening in the world, like how to support our clients in the best way. And I could imagine what your answer is, but. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about it, do it, bring it up, ask questions, put it on the table. I mean, you know, if we think about it, we talk to people just about like the hardest, most horrible things that have happened to them in their life. And why are we hesitant to talk about racism when we think about what it does to all of us? It is one of the greatest traumas we will live with, no matter what, a, what our race is. And so, I mean, obviously engage in the work, do the racial healing, like get in community before you're like, all right, like I'm going to put this on my website and, you know, but I bet people who are listening to your podcast actually have done some of this work. And so I just, um, including myself, like continue to nudge ourselves to take it one step, one step, uh, one more step in our professional development and our learning and our um, openness to exploring this with clients and with ourselves. Yeah. You know, we are kind of ending. I, I want to respect your time, so I don't want to go further than this. Um, is there anything that you want to say that feels like important as we end? I, mean, I think for our communities, for Asian, you know, Pacific Islander communities, so much of like our racial healing has to do with kind of unlearning anti-Blackness and some of colonization that got internalized right alongside racism. So I, I feel like we didn't talk about that as much, but, and I'm doing some work on that in a new book on racial liberation, but I feel like it is at the heart of a lot of our racial healing that, you know, we, we take on anti-blackness. It may not show up, you know, as like, I'm against black folks, right? But it shows up in, in, in how we um, are able to think about our healing from racism in tandem and alongside black folks and brown folks, right? So I think all need one another to do this work. And, and it really means getting curious about the cultural and I think histories of racism around other groups 
including our own. I mean, it's painful when we start looking at our own history, right? Whether it's like, you know, the yellow peril or like, you know, Indian Chinese folks working on the railroads or Latinx uh, migrant workers who were promised citizenship in a country that they already were, was already Mexico, but that's all another thing. Anyway, just kind of educating ourselves around uh, the trajectories of racism of different cultural groups is so important. So it's not favoring or uh, centering our own experience, sort of being curious, not just about our own, but how the system of white supremacy affects all of us involved. Yes. And how it's all designed to do one thing, which is uphold white supremacy and that we can totally do this. I mean, that seems like a big thing to drop at the end. Let's like get together with all groups of people and fighting racism, but it is kind of the movement forward. And it's what makes like kind of the dream I think I have, and I would imagine you do too, of of a future that actually includes racial liberation for everyone. So, which is totally possible. It's only 400 to 600 years old. So maybe this is a good question to wrap up. You know, I, I was I was like reading your acknowledgments, and I was like, wow, that is so hopeful. Like the last piece that you wrote, and I will just read it. Do we have? Yes, yeah, sure. I just read it? Yeah, yeah. You quoted Arundhati Roy's "Another world is not only possible; it is on her way. On a quiet day, I can hear her breathing." Yeah. And I wrote so much hope. <laughs> yes. And I guess I was curious about the sort of. Um, your hope, mm-hmm. like kind of what, what fuels that? Yeah. I mean, just think about what has happened. I mean, we're not in a post-racial world, but just since civil rights, think about the conversations we're having about immigration when for hundreds of years, we were on stolen land, unceded land that wasn't even talked about. And so, you know, these conversations, even, you know, our technology, are, you know, building global awareness. You can't shut the door on that. And got a whole new generation of folks who, I'm not saying millennials and the alpha or the I generation are like, oh, like, you know, I mean, there's still a lot of colorblind stuff, but I think there's a lot of curiosity. And I think there are large movements building. I mean, if we even think of like, what happened post 9-11 with anti-Muslim sentiment, how that affected brown communities within the Asian Pacific Islander umbrella. Um, it would be very different if it happened today, it, you know, in terms of outrage and anger and boundaries and activism. So I think we've got to remember that we're not post-racial and we're not there. But if you think about what we're doing in decade increments, as opposed to the beginning of racism and how it started, we're, we're moving. And we're, we're moving pretty quickly. Um, and, it, and we got a long ways to go. We have to do, uh, engage what Dr. Ibram Kendi calls anti-racist work and policy, structural change and all that. But when we do the racial healing work, I think we get stronger at being able to change policies and, and, and resist. So, so I'm very hopeful. Yeah, thank you for that. I think I got a little Good. more hopeful. <laughs> you might've been grieving. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed our conversation and your your thinking and your feeling around this. Me too. Thank you again.